Okay, everybody, we're going to try this again. <laughs> we had a technical glitch there. We're back up on Facebook now. So here's what I want to tell you about it. Hopefully you were able to tune back in that you, you held on. You didn't go somewhere else. All right. And uh, we welcome you to the Genesis Gathering. You should be um, watching live now, both by Facebook and on the church website. If you would, grab that link to those sites and send it to a friend. Ask him to join you. This is really going to be one of the most outstanding times that we've had live streaming since we started a year ago. I, I really feel that, and, and I say that for two reasons. Number one, because we're just coming out of our conference that we spent uh, several days in. Uh, normally, we would go to California, and this is our annual ministerial conference that we have where we sit with a round table of um, leadership and just flesh things out and pray for one another. And it's so exciting. It's so dynamic. And um, so we, we just spent a couple days doing that, number one. Number two, the Lord's given me a message to continue in our series on voices 
that really tackles some of the difficult passages of Scripture having to do with religious notions about Jesus. For instance, I'll give you one. Is it okay for us to fellowship with, to hang around, to be around non-Christians? Or are we supposed to come out from among them and be separate? So we're really going to touch on some religious uh, hot points and some religious hot buttons today, some sacred cows, and uh, your friends need to be there, okay? Because this, this will liberate them and set them free from the notions of the church and Jesus and, and this whole religious idea that we have here, especially in America and in Western evangelicalism about just who Jesus is and what's acceptable, all right? My wife's going to join us in just a, a few moments. She's going to conduct our time of prayer and announcements, but before we do any of that, I want to take you into a time of worship. This song is called From Graves to Garden. I know you're going to love it. Sing along with us. Many of you know it. It's going to set you free in a great way. I search the world couldn't fill me Man's empty praise Treasures that fade Are never enough And you came along And put me back together Every desire Is now satisfied 
Well, we're back. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give this over to Nina. Nina, it's good to have you with us. And, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> so uh, share some, some of the prayer needs. I know she has also a, a number that you can text us if you'd like to uh, share prayer requests with us this morning. We, we'd love to pray with you at the end of service. We're going to be taking those requests specifically and praying over them. Uh, in addition to anything that Nina might be leading you in right now. So if during the broadcast you have a prayer request, uh, please um, be sure to go ahead and text that in. You can text all during the broadcast, and Nina will collect those, and then we'll pray at the end of service as well. I'm going to give this uh, over to Nina. Hi. Uh, I take it you can hear me okay. All right. Um, so, so welcome, welcome everyone to Venice Gathering, and uh, it's uh, been an interesting <laughs> morning. I am not quite sure why we tend to have technical difficulties, uh, but here we are now. Um, so as Jeff said, the first thing I want to do is give you a phone number. He'll put it up on the screen there to text your phone, your prayer requests to me to my phone at 72087, whoops, wrong slide, dear, 8783323. There we go. 7208783323. If you have a prayer request, you may also uh, send them via Facebook. Um, again, sometimes there's either a delay on Facebook or Sometimes I find that some messages I, I miss, but once we find it, we'll be more than happy to pray for whatever prayer requests you send in. Um, as far as announcements go, we want to mention that, you know, we partner with St. John's Lutheran Church where we um, have our church services in person when we have church services in person. And we often couple with them at, uh, and join together with them in things that they're, they do annually. And one of those things is uh, have Easter food boxes. And not to mention that they constantly have a um, food pantry there. And so we want to restock that pantry as well as prepare food box, prepare for the food boxes that will be coming here soon. So we want to stock this up so that we can provide food boxes at Easter for those who may need some. And some of those people might be you and some of those people might be your friends. And we'd like to know if you need a food box, if you'd like a food box, if you know someone who needs a food box, let us know. We'll get their box put together. Uh, enlist your help if we can to get the food boxes to the to these folks. And so let me know if as soon as you can about families that may be needing food boxes. If you're bringing food, non-perishable, non-expired, uh, bring it over to St. John's uh, and we'll take it from there. Um, Zoom study. We are continuing our Zoom study on the book Love Wins. This Thursday, we're on chapter four. We're meeting every two weeks by Zoom. You can join in now if you would like to. I mean, we have uncovered a lot of ground already, but still, if you want to get the book, you can get it also on Audible and be listening to it. 
and uh, join in. And all you need to do is call me at 720. Once again, here's that phone number, 878-3323. We'll get you a, a Zoom link so that you can join our study. Wow, I was just reading some of it this morning, and I am always amazed in this book at the questions that are asked that I never thought to ask, and that suddenly um, really speak to me and say, man, I need to consider my thinking and consider what I believe about God. And so um, I invite you to join in. It's a very uh, interesting study, Love Wins. And um, as far as donating to Genesis and giving your tithes and offerings to God, through Genesis Church, we want to thank you uh, for those of you who are giving, for those of you who are receiving from this ministry. We encourage your consideration to give. I wanted to remind people of our mission statement that this is what you're giving into, to invite people into a growing faith in Jesus Christ, a gathering where God's presence is experienced and love and power. And though we may not be able to gather in person, we gather this way, we gather on phone calls, we gather by text, we gather at the bingo hall. <laughs> For those of you who don't know about our bingo church, uh, we'll have to tell you about that sometime. But the whole point of why uh, it is a blessing to give financially into Genesis Gathering is because we're about the business of inviting people into a growing faith in Jesus Christ and that they would know and experience his love and power as we connect together with people. And so I thank you for your giving. Um, you can give, I, I know Jeff's already put up those slides. You can give online at our website and go to the donate button, or you can give by texting to give, which is 720-730-8510. And then you just follow the prompts. And we thank you so much for your faithfulness in your tithes and offerings. So we've come now to a time of prayer and I am just going to um, check to see if I have any new prayer requests. I am not seeing any. Now, Kathy Randolph says that, are we frozen? I don't know if her uh, Facebook page froze up or what that means exactly. That's probably what it means. I, if she can hear me, I hope just refresh your page and that ought to get it going again. But I do have a couple of prayer requests, one from this past week and one that Michael sent us this morning. Kathy, this week, um, there is a friend of the family, uh, a gentleman who is only 26 years old with a brain tumor. Uh, he has a, a, a small child and another one on the way. We want to pray for him. And then Michael this morning, let us know, uh, boy, this is a difficult uh, situation that his cousin was in surgery and came out of it brain dead. And we want to pray for her and then for their family. And uh, I also want to pray uh, I, I for people in Texas who have been going through the uh, electricity is out, the pipes are freezing and breaking and water going everywhere. There's not been water to drink. Uh, this is not every person in Texas. I talked to one of my cousins this morning and uh, she and, and, and her sisters and brothers are okay. But uh, many people, no food on the grocery shelves. So uh, I want to pray for those folks dealing with uh, this difficulty today. So if you would join me, let's 
pray together. And and wait, one last thing. Um, oh, I see from Kathy now. Uh, pray for Michelle's healing after surgery. Many of you prayed for her surgery on Friday, which was an emergency uh, appendectomy, I believe. But Tanya Moline also let us know that last Sunday we prayed for her frozen pipes and they thawed without even a link. And thank you, Jesus, for that. Okay, here we go. Let's pray. Pray together for these needs. I um, want to say a shandai. Boy, we have some pretty big, big in our eyes needs this morning. And um, I, I want to pray, Lord, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth in Michael's cousin's life and the 26-year-old man's life and Michelle's, Kathy and Jack's daughter's life and in the people and their situation in Texas that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we know there's no sickness or disease in heaven. We know that there's enough provision in heaven, timely provision. And we pray these things come to earth quickly as it is in heaven. We speak your life. You are a God of life. Jesus came that we might have life and that more abundantly. And so we speak your life, Lord, into each one of these situations for Michelle, for Michael's cousin, for the 26-year-old, and for all the people in Texas and wherever in the South, not just in Texas, but I know that was the most uh, greatly hit by this weather. We speak, Lord, uh, your life and uh, your abundant life into every one of these situations. We thank you for your great love for each of us, Father, for each of these situations, each of these people involved in these situations. We thank you for your help um, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jeff? Take off mute. Uh, so I'm back. Go. And uh, thank you, Nina, for taking care of that. And we'll, um, again, if you have additional prayer requests during the message and some things that I say could certainly spark that, then text those in so that Nina can collect those and the two of us will come together and pray for you at the close of service, okay? Thanks, Nina. Hope. So, um, I'm mindful this morning that despite everything else that's going on, Jesus is here. Let's center on that. Let's center on the fact that in the big picture of things, no matter what is going on in our lives, Jesus is at the center. And that's where we want to major. That's where we want to stay. That's where we want to find uh, our peace, our purpose, and our provision. I'm going to continue in our, our series entitled Voices. This is part five, and I've entitled today, More Wine, Less Religion. There's a, a German physicist who said this, science progresses, and let me switch here, science pro progresses 
Uh, let me see if I can find that. I thought I had that right here for you, and I, I wanted to share it, and I believe it's right here. Science progresses one funeral at a time. Now, I'm going to explain that in just a second, but th this, this was a comment, um, a quote that was shared during our roundtable uh, over the past two days, and I misheard it. And I privately texted the individual that was speaking back, and I and I said, could you clarify, did I catch that right? Was it faith progresses one funeral at a time? <laughs> and he said, no, actually, it's science progresses one funeral at a time. But actually, that's even more true of faith. And I like that. I like my mishearing of it. The, what the German physicist uh, Max Planck or Planck meant by this is that just as soon as we get our arms around something and we think we've got science, the science of something nailed, there's a failure. There's a death in that thing. And then we have to open our heart, open our minds, and we advance to the next thing. And science is really very much about having funerals to the things that we were sure of and absolute about so that we can move forward. You know, faith is that way. Faith is very much about having funerals about the things of which we have been so certain so that we can open our hearts and our minds and move on to the next thing. Most people do not understand how subversive the teaching of Jesus really was. He, his provocative, rebellious teaching often contradicted the teachings of the religious leaders of his day, their systems, their practices, their rituals. He was rebellious. He was provocative. He was subversive. And, and that's the scandalous Jesus that we find in the New Testament. Jesus literally subverted the religion of his day to speak truth, to speak the revelation of God into this people, this society. It was Karl Barth, and I believe I have the quote here for you. It was Karl Barth that said, the revelation of God is about the abolition of religion. The revelation of God is about the abolition of religion. I've been reading a book by Bruxy Cavey called The End of Religion. And he made the statement that generally speaking, when we talk about religion, we're talking about systems of belief and the institutions that maintain them. He said, but for this book, I want to expound on that. He said, any reliance on systems or institutions, rules, or rituals as our conduit to God, right? So any reliance on systems or institutions, rules, or rituals as our conduit to God. That's going to be the working definition for religion that we use this morning. Now, he said, I want to personally interject my own definition of religion, and he said this, 
any system of rules, regulations, ritual, or routines that people use to obtain their spiritual end goal. Isn't that good? That is so true about religion and, and how religion takes humanity down. It doesn't exalt us. It takes us down because we focus on the institution. We, we focus on the ritual. We focus on the practice. We focus on the routines. We focus on the form. And then it becomes devoid of power to change our lives. I'm going to read from our text this morning, which is found, grab your Bibles, Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. I'm not going to have that as a slide, so I need you. In fact, actually, I do have this one as a slide, so it'll be on the screen. But for the rest of the passage that I read from Mark 2, I won't have all those verses on the uh, screen. And so I encourage you to grab your Bible. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 21. Here we go. Jesus said, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. This was one of the most subversive statements that Jesus made during his entire ministry. And what he's getting ready to do in the second chapter of Mark is give us several examples how he subverts the religion of his day, turns it upside down to bring a revelation of the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus. I want to start with a story about a paralyzed man. Now, Jesus unfolds this in the very beginning of Mark's gospel, chapter 2. Again, grab your Bibles, look with me, Mark chapter 2, the gospel of Mark. There was a gentleman that was lame, and several of his friends grabbed him, having heard that Jesus healed the lame, and they took him to where Jesus was teaching apparently in some sort of, it was a house church, house meeting, sort of a, maybe an after crusade time where a bunch of people had gathered. And by the time that the friends of this man had gotten him together, putting him on a, put him on a stretcher and, and ran him down to where this meeting was taking place, it was packed. There was no room in the house left, and people were gathered all around the outside. Now, back in those days, the windows, the doors were very open. People could look in on what was going on in the house, and certainly they could hear Jesus teaching. And so there was no opportunity. They, there was no chance to get this lame man close enough to Jesus so that he could touch him. That was their goal. So they went up on the roof. <laughs> they tore a roof, 
uh, excuse me, tore a hole in the roof and let the man down through the roof in front of Jesus while he was teaching there in the house. So we pick up this story in verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I want you to I want you to underline that. Take special note of that. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. He knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their hearts. In the realm of the spirit, the heart becomes vulnerable. In the realm of the spirit, the heart gets exposed to ways of thinking, the way that we are thinking presently and the way that God wants us to think by revelation. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. Verse 10, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I'll tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And he got up, he took up his mat and he walked in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Now, again, it's very important to understand what's taking place here. Jesus began, as they let this man down in the midst of this Bible study and this crusade that was going on in this home. Who knows how many had gathered. The homes were large in spaces. There were certainly hundreds and hundreds of people there, inside and out. They let this man down. And Jesus does not reach out to heal him. He speaks to him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, all the religious leaders hearing this, all right, all the religious type, all the stuffy religious, you know, type, they heard this and they begin to think in their heart, why, this is blasphemy. There isn't anyone that can forgive sins but God. And, and then that requires a sacrifice and that requires blood. That, that requires going into the temple and sacrificing animals and only God can forgive sin. And then there's, there's a routine, there's a ritual. You, you have to follow the prescribed, right, rules. In rituals and Jesus just speaks to him and says I forgive your sin your sins are forgiven you one of the greatest blasphemy blasphemies one of the one of the most rebellious subversive things say that word subversive subvert Jesus subverted the teaching the religious teaching of his day and in this one chapter, we have four different instances of his subverting religious teaching, starting with this one. And there's few that are any greater than this one. Then to take the subject of forgiveness of sins and say, none of this stuff in your law, 
None of these rituals, none of these things that you're so certain about that God requires, none of them are required. In fact, I forgive your sin. Your sins are forgiven you, he speaks to the man. <laughs> Blasphemy, subversion. Why? Because at that time, religion taught that God demanded justice and payment for a man's sin. Furthermore, there had to be an animal sacrifice. God wants blood in order for forgiveness to be forgiven. And this is similar to the religious teaching that comes from pulpits today, especially here in Western evangelicalism. God demands justice. He demands payment for man's sin. And so he punished Jesus on the cross, exacting a, a debt from his death. Oh, pictures, paintings, icons, especially from the Middle Ages, all depict God as an angry father, a weakened Jesus, suffering uh, for man and, and due to man's sins, and, and an angry God. You would think that John 3.16, I mean, if, if you listen to the modern teaching on this subject of forgiveness and, and what we have to do to get forgiveness, you would think John 3.16 goes something like this. God so hated the world that he killed Jesus. Now, I know that sounds subversive, but it's no more subversive than what Jesus was doing in his teaching when he pronounced over this lame man, your sins are forgiven, get up and walk. So knowing their thoughts in the middle of this and them thinking, what blasphemy, how dare he subvert our teaching and our religion? He says, okay, well, so you know that I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your mat, walk, be healed. And he does. He gets up, he takes up his walk, a mat, and he walks out. See, what Jesus knew is if this man really got a revelation that his sins were forgiven, that God loves him, that God was accepting him, that it wasn't based on any religious ritual, it wasn't based on behavior modification or anything that he needed to do, but simply on the mercy of God. When he gets a revelation of that, healing will come to his body. You see, because the one follows the other. Our greatest need is to be accepted by God and reconciled to him and to know that our sins are forgiven. Paul said that the reason Jesus had to be crucified was not for our sins to buy forgiveness, but rather in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, to condemn sin in the flesh. Nowhere in Scripture is it taught that the objective of Christ's coming to earth and his death on the cross was so that we could be forgiven and go to heaven. The story of the gospel isn't about forgiving sin so that man can go to heaven. It's the reconciling of all of creation to God so that heaven can come to earth. See, Jesus was a temple of the Holy Spirit, bringing heaven to earth 
And so you and I now, having been born again, having received that forgiveness, that mercy of God, and having become the temple of God, we now house God. <laughs> we have his DNA. And it's very subversive teaching to say that you and I actually bring heaven to earth. See, we're doing the same thing Jesus did. So the, the story of the gospel isn't forgiving sin so that man can go to heaven. It's the reconciling of all of God's creation so that heaven can come to earth. Sin is only a part of the much larger uh, picture and plan of God to reconcile all things to himself. See, this whole religious teaching on uh, that God has to be satisfied, he's angry, he requires blood, comes not from Jesus, not from his disciples, not from the apostles or the teaching in the early church. It comes from a early church, I say early church, he wasn't that early, but about a thousand AD, there was a priest and pastor and teacher called Anselm who introduced the satisfaction theory of atonement into the church. It's the idea that Jesus had to die a bloody, horrible death on the cross in order to save us from our sins because God was offended by our sins and he had to receive satisfaction and had to get a payback in order to forgive us. I mean, after all, God's honor is at stake. That's what Anselm taught. And the church began to receive that, accept it. They began to die in the sense of, of knowing the revelation of what Jesus taught. They moved away from the gospel and the good news, and they began to receive this teaching of Anselm at 1000 AD. In other words, for a thousand years, the church, the early church fathers, the apostles, Jesus himself, and all of the disciples who birthed the early church never taught this penal substitution satisfaction theory of forgiveness of sins and atonement. Now, I want to put something on the screen here because I think it's so important. No one had to die for God to be merciful. No one had to die for God to be merciful. It actually goes completely against the teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. And, and you have to look no further than Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. Three different stories or parables there that Jesus gives us. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and what's called the prodigal son, the lost son. All three of those, in all three of those instances, what is lost is pursued by the Father's love and redeemed just because God is good and he loves us. There's no blood, there's no sacrifice, there's no satisfaction of an angry God. In fact, the picture of God in the, in the parable of the prodigal son is quite opposite of the way that American evangelicalism or the Western take on the gospel is taught today. And I might bring into this the teaching of confession, by the way, which, by the way, is noticeably absent 
from the lame man participating in. He doesn't repent. He, he doesn't go through a list of sins that he confesses to Jesus there in Jesus's holy midst and holy presence. Doesn't do any of that. Jesus just forgives his sin. Question, since Jesus hadn't yet died for sin, since God hadn't yet been satisfied by a bloody sacrifice, how is it that Jesus already had the authority to forgive sin? How is it that Jesus forgives this man's sin when there's been no sacrifice, no prayer of repentance, no confession of his sins, no ritual followed? <laughs> how subversive! That's right because new wine can't go into an old wineskin, our text. The most subversive statement of Jesus in the Gospels. You see, bringing something into the temple as a sacrifice back in the Old Testament, as they had to do, had nothing to do with appeasing or satisfying God's anger. It had to do with sharing something with God back to him in gratitude. Even the sacrificial animal for the sin offering wasn't killed. Hands were laid on him. He was presented to God in gratitude. And then that little lamb was sent off into the wilderness. Alive. No blood. No sacrifice. In fact, we find in several passages in the Old Testament, God takes no delight in sacrifice, but in the condition of our heart. How subversive. And Jesus picks up on that in his teaching. You see, confessing our sins is very simply acknowledging in honesty and humility before Jesus that our sins are already forgiven and cleansed through the merciful forgiveness of God, and that we're thankful. That's what confession is. Now, the second story that Jesus gives us here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, that's very subversive, is when Jesus calls the sinner Levi, who's a tax collector, calls him to follow him, and then goes to his house for a banquet. So let's set this up. Jesus goes down after this incident here, after the evening of teaching where the paralytic is healed. He goes down to the lake and he's walking along the lake just teaching and people are gathering. Big crowd is gathering to listen to him. And as he's walking, there's a tax collector's booth and Levi's sitting in it. And he says to Levi, come follow me. And, and then Levi says, hey, I want to throw a banquet for this man. I hear what you're teaching, and it is subversive. It is revolutionary. It is full of grace and love. I'm throwing a banquet for you. All right? Come on over to my house at 7 o'clock. All right? So we, we pick up the story in verse 15 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 2. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, note in Luke's parallel passage to this, Luke, he says in verse 32 of chapter 5, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. By the way, I want to remind you, the definition of repent does not mean shame and guilt and confessing your sins, going through a list and feeling sorry and all of that mess. It means very simply to change your mind, to put God's thoughts at the center of your mind and think about things, including God's forgiveness, the way God does. And so here we have Healthy righteous versus sick sinners. Who does Jesus choose to hang with? Healthy righteous or sick sinners? So here he is over at Levi's house. Now I want you to get a picture of this. He's over there in a banquet situation. Back then they didn't have 36 inch, 48 inch tall tables, by the way, that they all pulled up to in their nice chairs and they all sat on the floor, leaned back on their arms, sat around mats, put the table, put the food all out in the middle of the floor, had an awesome fellowship, smacking each other on the back, telling jokes, sharing fishing stories. And I can imagine there was some, some very raw language, probably some dirty jokes even. These were rough people. The Bible says the house was just full of tax collectors and sinners. <laughs> Imagine that. Jesus goes to a banquet where the whole place is full of sinners. I mean, well, all kinds of different sinners. Terrible sinners. I forgot to take down that verse, but or that 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 comment. Maybe it needed to be up there for a while, so it kind of burnt into the Are you getting this? Are you getting the picture of what is going on here in, in this second incident that, that Jesus gives us here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2? Surely, they start, they start saying, and they're saying this out loud, surely, if he were a righteous man, if he were such a, 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 a right, if he were a good Christian, if he were really God's teacher, someone that God approves and accepts, he wouldn't be having dinner with such people. He wouldn't be listening to their stories or joking around on with them, slapping them on the back. He wouldn't be submitting his ears to this disgusting language that he's hearing. I mean, if the presence of God were on this man, like it is on true Christians, he, he couldn't find himself at such a banquet. How, how disgusting, how, how dirty. Just the anointing of God can't be around that, you know. My spirit's become so clean. I'm so close to Jesus now. I'm so close to God now that I just can't be in that kind of atmosphere anymore. I used to say that. I know, I know a whole host of Christians that still think that way and say those kind of things. When we combine Luke's account with Mark's, we see immediately that the focus of Jesus 
was to facilitate the rethinking, not the rejection of God, but the rethinking of these people so that they would perceive Jesus and the gospel and God as forgiving and loving. That's what repentance means. You say, yeah, but Pastor Jeff, what about that scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul said, you need to come out from among them and be separate. Don't touch even the unclean thing. <laughs> well, interpreted, what you're saying is, don't have any fellowship with people who aren't Christian. Don't be around their sinfulness, their gatherings, their language, their activities, their lifestyle. How disgusting. Apparently, Jesus never got the memo. Frankly, it isn't what Jesus practiced or how he lived at all. And in fact, in chapter 15 of Luke, it says this, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and despicable people and even eats with them. <laughs> I think you and I need to change our invitation lists. If we carefully look at what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 17, and we read it from some of the other translations, we'll see things like this. Do not be mismatched with. Weymouth's translation says, do not bear the yoke with. The mirror translation says, consequently, escape the snare of these phantom ideas. Do not reduce your horizon to become attached to anything that is not equally elevated. End quote. Paul's concern, his warning, was about becoming unequally yoked, like taking an oxen and a mule and then yoking them with that wood yoke across their necks. Well, the mule isn't going to be able to pull the same as the oxen. It's completely different. He's not going to be able to, he's going to have a completely different view of life, a, comp a completely different identity than the ox. And, and so what Paul is saying is, look, don't lower yourself to the view of those who still are seeing themselves religiously in light of an angry God that requires blood and that they're just worms and they're no good and they need to repent and kind of crawl their way to God. Don't, don't be careful who you are with and who you're around. Now, the third story comes up where Jesus is questioned about fasting in verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours aren't? And watch this. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? There'll be a time when he's gone and then they'll fast again. You know what he was talking about? Is, you know what? Your old stinking religion. <laughs> <laughs> you think by your rituals and your fasting 
and your prayers and your devotion and observance of all of the laws that you can earn your way to God or that you can appease God. It, 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 it's like taking a flask. It's like having a, an urn or a goblet that you would drink out of. And instead of drinking the substance of what's in it, you lick. Oh, how precious. How precious this prayer time. How precious this passage of scripture. Mm. How, how precious our going to church. How, how precious our rituals and our laws. And never drinking from the cup the rich substance of what the form was meant to represent, of what the scripture was meant to represent, about the what the prayer was meant to bring you to a recognition of, a revelation of, which is his presence and his heart, his love for you. How dare we substitute the form for the substance the real power that changes us. We need to drink what's inside, not be so worried about the form and the ritual and the law and the method because Jesus subverts all of it. In fact, he'll do the greatest subversion of flipping. He will subvert the, the most foundational doctrine in the entire law of Moses, which happens to be blood sacrifice and forgiveness of sin. He's going to flip it on its head and subvert it all and say, watch this, man, I forgive your sin. And so that you know I have the authority to forgive sin, I forgive your sin. Take up your mat and walk because physical wholeness follows spiritual wholeness. Physical and emotional wholeness follows getting our mind right repentance replacing our thoughts with god's thought so that we think about ourselves and our identity the way that god thinks about us now watch this all right now i want to remind you most people do not understand how subversive the teaching of jesus was i mean he was provocative he was rebellious his teaching absolutely contradicted the teaching of religious leaders of his time, including all of their systems and their practices and all of it. And then he makes the statement, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. What was he talking about? Well, you can't patch a tear on an old garment with a new patch because it will just tear. If that, if that, if that patch isn't prepared and properly matches, it, it will just tear. The tear will get worse. And then he, secondly, he says, and no one pours new wine into old wine spin, skins. You can't take the gospel. You can't take the message of the kingdom that Jesus preached. You can't take the love and forgiveness of God and pour it in to the old religious systems of the Old Testament. And, and I'm going to go a step further. You can't take 
the good news that Jesus preached. You can't take the message of God's love and forgiveness and pour it in to most of the evangelical teachings that we have in Western society. Our religious notions of God and scripture, you can't do it. We need to subvert all of that mess and get back to the teaching of Jesus. Now watch, I told you there were four. I'm going to give you the fourth one, and I'm telling you, this is huge. This is ginormous when you look at what God says here through Jesus and what Jesus does. Verse 23, one Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain fields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick up some heads of grain and eat them. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is, watch this, unlawful on the Sabbath? Now keep in mind, when you broke one law, one part of the law, you were guilty of breaking all of it. And oh, by the way, nothing is holier than the laws and rituals regarding the Sabbath. Jesus picks two, the two out of the four, he picks the two that are the most subversive in all of the Mosaic law and Jewish teaching, the Sabbath, and forgiveness of sins or atonement. All right, we keep reading. Verse 25, he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Now watch this, look in your Bibles. Verse 27, then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In Luke's account of this, he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. What was he doing? He was claiming not only to be divine, but that he is above the Sabbath. I want you to think about that. Jesus was claiming not only to be divine, but he is claiming to be above the Sabbath, okay? Verse 27, let's read it again. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I am Lord of the Sabbath. And, and by inference, what he's also doing here is so are we the disciples. And oh, they got hot mad at Jesus. I'm not only divine, I'm not only God in flesh, but I'm above your Sabbath teaching. In fact, I'm above the law. Yes, I came to complete it and establish it, but my words are even above your religion, your teachings, your ritual. See, everything about God actually resides in me. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And so I'm above the Sabbath, and oh, by the way, so are my disciples, so they can walk right into the temple, they can go into the holy place too, and they can eat that bread. And so God's human creation, the children of Adam, are more important than the Sabbath. And I might say it another way, 
talk about subversion. The Bible was written down and recorded for man. Man wasn't written or created for the Bible. It is not God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. The Sabbath was a reminder for Israel of God's grace and in releasing how God released the Israelites from Egypt. And Jesus knew that well. He knew that the Sabbath was a day to commemorate the freedom and the divine grace of God. And so he goes into there, he eats, he lets his disciples eat, and then he says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And so are my disciples. They're greater than all of this. So in other words, God's grace towards humanity, and in this case, all of humanity, all of the disciples, is pronounced by our thankfulness and our worship of God. And so Karl Barth's statement, let me see if I can go back to it. I love it here. The revelation of God is the abolition of religion. I want you to think about the things that we've shared this morning, what's going on right now inside of you. There might be some rage. There might be some new humility. There might be some anger. There might be some, oh my goodness. I want you to bring all of that to our time of prayer now after this song. Let's have a time of reflection and then we'll come back and close. To God I serve no solely how to triumph My God will never fail No, my God will never fail I'm gonna see a victory I'm gonna see a victory For the battle belongs to you, Lord I'm gonna see a victory for the battle belongs to you, Lord. There's power in the mighty name of Jesus. Every war he wages, he will win. Oh, I'm not backing down from any giant. Cause I know how this story is. Yes, I know how this story is. 
for evil and you turn it for good you turn it for good you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good you turn it for good oh you take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good You turn it for good You turn it for good You take what the enemy meant for evil And you turn it for good You turn it for good You take what the enemy meant for evil And you turn it for good You turn it for good More wine, less religion. More wine, less religion. I want to put back up I want to put back up this uh, what religion is and I want you to think about I want you to take it with you this week any reliance on systems or institutions rules or rituals as a conduit to God quit kissing quit kissing the form quit kissing the ritual quit sucking on the cup Quit licking 
Let's drink. Let's drink from who Jesus is. Let's realize who he created us to be. And let's allow this subversive, beautiful gospel of Jesus to change our lives and elevate us back into the arms of a loving Father. Father, I pray right now for everybody under the sound of my voice who's watching or will be watching and listening to this in the weeks, months to come. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will subvert the religion in us all, that you will come in and, and cut, cut that out. Just begin to attack it, Holy Spirit, with your presence, with the truth of God's word, with the revelation of who God is and who his character is, Holy Spirit. I pray that the word of God, the scriptures would come alive for my listeners in ways that they've never had it before. And I pray that all of us would repent because Jesus wasn't sent for the healthy and the sound and everybody who thinks they're okay. He was sent for the quote, the sick and the needy or those who were willing to change their thoughts so Holy Spirit, help us, help us understand how to repent and receive this glorious gospel of the kingdom of who you are and what you've done. Well, we're going to say goodbye. We'll see you next week. Again, thank you for your giving, your love. Thank you for being part of our gathering. And um, tell somebody about it. Let them know. We'll see you next Sunday. Thank you all. Have a great rest of your weekend.